Welcome to the element of surprise. You don't need fortune. You don't need fame. You don't need a credit card to ride this train. My name is Chadwick J. Suet, and I'm your host on this little shindig we like to take together every once in a while. Now, this is, of course, going to be the annual holiday episode, but that said, there's going to be some other stuff I want to touch upon. Um... Before we get into it, check out the Facebook page, www.facebook.com backslash EOS Mentally Irregular. Join the EOS Army group, and uh, of course you can find us wherever you find your podcasts. Our hosting site is podbean.com. So, 
<clears throat> all that said, let's just jump right into it. Um, so Disney, the Disney Corporation, their current business model over the past few years, I've noticed, is basically using blood magic to revive old movie and old properties back to life. Um, so that said, it came to my attention that we're getting a new Honey, I Shrunk the Kids movie, and the upcoming sequel slash reboot slash whatever you want to call it is just going to be called Shrunk, and it has Josh Gad, who is the voice of the snowman from Frozen, and he's going to play the adult son of uh, Wayne Selinsky, who was played, of course, by Rick Moranis in the originals. Um, predictably enough, with a movie being called Shrunk and being a sequel to Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, the movie will find Josh Gad shrinking his family because I'm guessing that an irrational obsession with shrink rays is genetic for some reason. Um, but that's not why I'm talking about this. Why I'm talking about this is because of the sheer joy and excitement that I have, which only rivals the sheer horror of them making another Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and that is that Rick Moranis, one of the greatest comic actors of all time, is returning from his 20-plus year hiatus to reprise the role of Wayne Zielinski. This is going to be his first live-action movie since 1997, guys. And as much as I love Rick Moranis and am excited to have him back literally doing anything after 20-plus years, I need to point out that the character of Wayne Zielinski is a fucking monster. So, when I was a kid, I loved Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I fucking loved it. It was a great film. As an adult, I tried re-watching it with my kid. And it's pretty clear to me that... You know, Wayne is, not Rick Moranis, but Wayne, the character he's playing, is just the, the absolute worst. Just the absolute fucking worst. Because at the beginning of the movie, after ignoring his son's pleas to spend some quality time together, he instead pours his entire focus into his work, which is a machine I'd like to point out that he leaves unattended in an unlocked room fully activated. Oh, and it's also barely functioning. It literally just exploded fruit and he just leaves it on in the in the attic, door wide open. Anyone can walk in and out. It's a fucking deadly weapon. He hasn't perfected it. It makes things explode at this point. But nope, that's fine. He's just haphazard, zany old Wayne and you know, as the movie progresses, um, you know, through a series of happy accidents, instead of exploding his children all over the attic uh, walls and floor, it shrinks them and he has to go on a wild fucking uh, adventure to find them while they're on a wild adventure in the backyard, the deadliest place that you could ever be if you're fucking, uh, you know, fraction of a centimeter tall. Um, but you'd think that all this, that his character of Wayne Zielinski would get a takeaway from this experience. It would be maybe something like, hey, don't let children any near my wildly dangerous uh, ray guns. But that doesn't happen because they made a sequel called Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. And despite the fact 
that in the first movie, he clearly had the ability to enlarge objects already because he did restore his children to size. And then at the end of the movie, they're eating that giant fucking Thanksgiving turkey. He's now working for a lab at a company somewhere and working on a ray that makes things, a, a ray gun that makes things enlarged. He already has this technology, but he's working on a new one, a big one, and it also doesn't work. And uh, I guess because nearly murdering his kids didn't uh, make him less sexually desirable to his wife, they now have a new kid, a two-year-old son. And uh, for some insane reason, Wayne decides to test this invention on his son's favorite toy. Can you guess what happens next? Yeah, his insanely dangerous shrinking and enlarging technology zaps another one of his fucking children. Thankfully, uh, this leads to the toddler just rapidly growing and, you know, not a funeral. But uh, does that teach, teach Wayne Zielinski the valuable lesson of the dangers of scientific irresponsibility that he needs to learn? No, because there's the third movie, Honey, We Shrunk Ourselves, in which he still keeps the goddamn shrinking machine in the fucking attic, and even though the government in the film has explicitly forbidden him from using the device at all, he just dusts it off to impress his brother and ends up miniaturizing him and his entire family again. Um, honestly, I've thought a lot about this. I, I, it's no secret that I love Rick Moranis. I think he's fucking, he's a gem. He's honestly, um, the, in my opinion, the best thing Canada has ever offered us aside from John Candy, God rest. And um, that said, the only reason the character of Wayne Zielinski isn't in a supermax prison for crimes against humanity is because nobody has the heart to arrest Rick Moranis. He's too lovable. He could build any, any number of crazy death rays that shrink, enlarge, twist people around, lengthen them, turn them inside out, and he'd just get away with it. So... In my opinion, since this reboot is already being filmed, if I were going to be the guy, if it was like, hey, Chad, we, we know you've seen the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids movies. I'd be like, oh, God, yeah, yes, I have. What, um, what would you, we're, we're making another one. We're bringing it back, a legacy sequel. What would you do? I'd be like, well, logically speaking, it should be a police procedural drama about him and his family being arrested for miniaturizing the neighbors or something. And then the subsequent court case that follows the entire time you could have uh, Wayne begging the authorities to let him off lightly, followed by some classic Rick Moranis Zanus. And they'd go, hmm, hmm, yeah, we're going to go another way with that. And I'd go, well, you're going the wrong way. Anyway, I just wanted to touch on that. Now, what, actually, no, while I'm on the subject of Disney movies, um, you know those movies like Zootopia and Sing and stuff like that, where it's a, it's a world populated by anthropomorphic animals. Animals that are just, like, upright walking, dressed like people, doing people stuff all the time. There's no humans to be found. It's just, the world is animals. Anthropomorphic animals. Every time you see those movies, you will see a family of animals in the movie, but that family is always the same species. It's either a family of, like, all rabbits, or, like, a family of, like, all monkeys, or all fucking horses, or all giraffes. You never see a family that's, like, a condor for a dad, and, like, an alpaca for a wife. I want that. I want to see mixed-race 
anthropomorphic animal families in children's films. I want to see a father who's like a dolphin and a mother that's a fruit bat, and then we can see their their brood of horrific dolphin fruit bat hybrid children just flapping around, struggling to breathe through their blowholes, screaming in existential terror and pain at the world that's failed them. That's what I want. That's what I want in one of these movies. And I know why they'll never do it. They'll be like, oh, that would probably scare the kids. It's like, okay. So what you're saying is that... Uh, what you're saying is that you're unintentionally, or maybe, you know, lightly veiled, very intentionally discriminating against uh, mixed marriages, is what you're saying. No, no, we're not saying that. We're, you know, these are animals. They're not people. People can do what they want. Animals, not so much. Okay, well, then put it in the movie. Put it in the movie. I want to see a dolphin, fruit bat, fucking mutant kid just sitting there being like, with its little wings flapping off its fucking off the side of its dorsal fin and its body just flapping around. That that's what I want. I want that. Bring it to me. Bring it to me or you're racist. That's that's the answer. Okay. So, it is the holiday season. As you know, I get deep into the uh, mythos each year. Just like what I do with being manly in November. Come the holidays, it's time to Time to dissect some Christmas. Time to take a look at some of the Christmas joy that uh, everybody just looks at that's objectively horrifying and uh, call it for what it is. So, sat down with the family, watched uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the classic Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer special. And in the first five minutes of this special, Rudolph is just born, Santa comes in to the cave, and then he sings a song in which he claims to be the king of jingling. You know, he goes, jingle, 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 hear my sleigh bells ring, I am old Kris Kringle, I'm the king of jingling. Firstly, I've got some questions. Is this a title that he gave himself or one that he was appointed? Also... What exactly does being the king of jingling entail? And what are the benefits? Because personally, being the king of jingling sounds like a living hell. It just sounds like you're just constantly surrounded by the sound of never-ending jingle bells. Maybe directly in your environment, maybe just inside your head. I don't know. But just it's, it's constant jingle bells ringling all the time. And that sounds to me, personally, like that would just be the worst kind of life. You know, regardless of what my status in this Jingle Bell world is, whether I'm the king of jingling or otherwise, I just wouldn't want to be there. That just sounds like a living fucking hell. And another thing I want to point out, too, is why is it that Santa just casually strolls into, you know, Donner's cave right after Rudolph is born? He's walking into essentially what is the birthing room, to introduce himself mere moments after Rudolph is born. He may not actually be a king of, of anything, but the dude sure as hell lords himself around like he is. You know, talking deer are in fucking full-on labor, and this elderly human just walks right in during the birth, sings a song about how self-important he is, and then just fucking leaves. He doesn't even say goodbye. If you don't believe me, watch it. He sings the song, 
and just walks out. And then baby Rudolph is like, bye-bye, and says bye, and is very polite. Santa says fucking nothing. He just fucking leaves. Walks in, sings his song, leaves. That's it. Then the final thing about Santa in Rudolph, not about Santa in general, but about Santa in the Rudolph special, is that he's shown throughout the entire story as being very thin, like unhealthily thin, all the way up until Christmas Eve. In fact, he retains this sickly thin structure and body build up until mere moments before he needs to get off trekking around the world. And then he just puts on like 200 pounds in an hour. Now, I thought to myself, I'm like, well, maybe they just padded the suit. But you clearly see him with before he puts the, like, the full Santa costume on, and he's just 200 pounds heavier. I'm assuming that, because earlier in the movie there's the scene where um, the reindeer are trying to teach all the young reindeer how to be reindeer, and that's when they make fun of Rudolph for his nose. I'm assuming that all those other little reindeer kids that didn't work out, that didn't live up to the standard Santa had... Uh, ridiculously set for them he just ate them all in one day and that's why they're he's 200 pounds heavier and thinking about it that's a fate rudolph could have shared had it not been for his suddenly valuable nasal deformity think about it from time to time i catch myself doing something at work you know i'll be at work and I'm being annoyed by the average pedestrian. I'll be sitting there transferring their content, 9,000 photos of their idiot children from an iPhone 7 to an iPhone 13 they can't afford, or explaining why Google isn't related to the cell phone company I work for, or whatever. But I'm sitting there dealing with their idiocy, and then I catch myself doing Kegel exercises, and every time I do it, I catch myself getting into it. Like, I'll start counting how long I can hold the kegel for, and then I start counting reps. Like, I get serious about it. And as a muse, nice weather, sure. I walk the trail in Export and Delmont. I, I enjoy doing that. It's, it's going on walks with my family, so I don't consider it exercise. It's just a healthy thing that I like to do. Kegel exercises, on the other hand, are something I start doing subconsciously and then I realize I'm doing them, and then I keep doing them, and I get serious about it. Like I'm a douchebag at the gym showing off how much that I can bench press. I don't know. Okay, so there are some things, you know, like this This came up, and I wrote this down. And so it's in my notes, and it's, uh, I'm going I'm to talk about it. There are some things that just piss you, piss you off to just a point of irrationality. Things that just get you so fucking angry that you literally see red. That's a thing. You can get so angry you see red. It's happened. Things that make your blood fucking boil and then you just you stop thinking straight. Just at all. Like the most irrational thought will come in your head and you're like, yep, sounds like a good way to handle this because you're so fucking angry. Now recently I experienced such a thing. And for any of you avid listeners or people who know me in person, you know that much like the Incredible Hulk, I'm always a little angry. So this one really pushed me over my line. And it has everything to do with being a parent and just loving my child. So about a month ago, give or take, I'm going to the car in the morning to either go to work or the store or whatever. 
and I noticed my son's bicycle was leaning up against the garage door. And that's nothing out of the ordinary. So I just grumble about him not putting his shit away, and then I head over to the bike, and I go to put it in the garage. But when I get to the bike, I notice that the wheels of the bike are all bent up, the spokes are busted, the chain's falling off. It's just been beat to hell and back. So I put it in the garage. I'm angrier than I should be about it. But I put it in the garage, and I just wait for him to get home. Because I don't know, at this point, if my son, God love him, did this damage to the bike. You know, he's, he's a very destructive person. He can tear apart almost anything with minimal effort. So I don't know that he didn't cause this damage. So I'm waiting for him to get home, and I'm going to ask him about it. So anyway, later in the day, he comes home. I tell him to go look at his bike. He sees it, and he just starts freaking out. Not like sad. He's just like, what happened? What happened to my bike? And I, you know, I know him. I've known him for 10 years. I've known him his whole life. He's my son. I raised him. So I can tell right away that he had no fucking clue about this damage. So that leaves one option. And that is that one of my two elderly neighbors, or someone who came to visit one of my two elderly neighbors, they just propped it up against the garage and just, and just took off, just left. So, as aggravating as that is, I wasn't completely pissed off about this until the other night when um, we finally decided just, you know, there's no salvaging this bike. Uh, I've looked into, like, getting replacement wheels and stuff. There's just too much damage. He's going to need a new bike. So, the other night, we decided to throw it away. And I take it up to the trash, and I just put it next to the garbage cans. And my son is looking at it. He's just sitting there. He came outside, which he never does late at night in the cold when I'm taking the trash out. He would normally peer out the window. But he comes outside, and he's sitting there, and he's looking at it. And the look on his face is just one, one of just pure disappointment. Just, total, just totally being bummed out. You know, it's just a look of disappointment and sadness, and it just fucking murders me. You know, no, no waterworks, no crying, no complaining, just a, just a look of just like, <sighs> depressed. And that's, that's where I snapped, because that, at that moment, I saw that this fucking world we live in had finally gotten to him. And it just, it, it somewhere... The world just snapped its fingers like Thanos and was just like, childhood over, innocence gone. And I know it happens, and I know that it's inevitable, but it's my job as a parent to give him as much hope and purity as I can muster, which you all know isn't much, but every bit I get, I give to him. So to see it ripped away from him set me the fuck off. Now this is where things get interesting. Like I said, I started this with, sometimes you get so pissed off that you get to a point of irrationality. So I saw him get dis disappointed, and he goes back inside the house, and he's like, oh, I loved that bike. And he just goes back in the house and everything like that. And I just start looking at my neighbor's doors, and I'm like furious at this moment. I'm not showing my fury. Like, I'm not kicking and screaming and, like, you know, going over and knocking on the door and getting ready to, like, put, brush their windows in. But I'm thinking, I'm like, you know what? You know what the best idea would be, I should just light their houses on fire. And at that moment, in my head, it sounded perfectly reasonable. One of their houses, like my apartment's kind of duplexy, so one of their houses is my house also. 
lighting them their house on fire, which again, in my head, sounded like not only the best fucking choice, but the right one, would have burnt me and my family to death. But at the time, I was so irrationally angry about my son's disappointment at the, over this bike that I'm just like, yep, that's that's what we got to do. Go, Where's the gasoline? I know I've got gasoline in the garage. Uh, you know, I know... Um, Maybe like an old like an old rag or something would burn real good, and then just, just light them up, motherfucker. They're gonna take my kid's bike away from him and you, thereby just destroy his innocence. Then I'm gonna take their fucking lives. And it didn't it didn't go away for several days. Like even at work, people were coming in, and they're like, "Hi, um, I really want to get my kid for Christmas." And my response is, yeah, my kid wanted a fucking bike. You know what? And like, you know, I'm sitting there thinking in my head. And they're, they're just trying to do Christmas shopping for their own families. And I'm still harboring all this irrational anger about the bike. So I'm like, they're like, yeah, can, do, you, do you have the iPhone 13? My, my daughter really wants the, the pink one. And I'm like, no, we have to order it. Good luck getting it before Christmas. It's not going to come in before January. Haha, <laughs> you're fucked. Only I didn't say, haha, you're fucked. But, you know, that was basically how I was treating people over this anger of my kid's bike. I've had time to think about it. I'm not going to burn anyone to death. And I've stopped treating everybody I meet like they're fucking responsible for the destruction of my kid's bike. Um, that said, it's, it just amuses me how when you get so irrationally angry, you do the weirdest fucking things. And they're just, they're just the right call at the time if you don't take a moment to breathe and like get that anger out breathe away that rage and just just start acting on it every action you takes not only the uh morally wrong one but it's just in your head you're like yep that's it what's that somebody somebody yelled at my dog well you know what time to cut a tree down and fucking hope it falls on their house oh what's that you told my kid to move out of the way so that way you could uh, get to work on time? Well, I just slashed your tires and put a banana in your gas tank. You know, all these fucking, like, juvenile fucking ways to handle shit when you're so irrationally angry. You don't even think about them. You're like, what's that? You, you're going to yell at my you're gonna yell at my family? Okay, well, check this out. I just fucking crashed your car into a wall. How did I start your car? I don't even fucking know. I don't remember. I was too angry. Anyway, moving on. So, every Christmas, every holiday season, we hang our stockings in front of the fireplaces, radiators, or dumpster fires uh, that we call our lives so that Santa can fill them with his little knickknacks, with his little presents. As far as Christmas traditions go, this is really one of the stranger ones. Um, the holiday already has designated presents and the locale for said presents. The bottom of a Christmas tree, which is more space, thus facilitating bigger gifts. So why are we shoving things into old socks? Well, I looked into it because there's no rabbit hole apparently I won't go down. Um, and it turns out that the tradition of hanging stockings comes from the fourth, the actual 4th century, like 400 AD. And it started because there was like a poor, like, you know, a poor guy. Like a guy, he wasn't wealthy. 
He was on the poor end of uh, the spectrum. And he was basically bemoaning the fact that he couldn't afford a dowry for his three daughters to get married. And that was um, what, back in the day, that was what you had to do. Like, if you were the daughter, or if you were the, the father of the bride, it was your job to pay for all their marriages. So, you know, and they called that a dowry. So he couldn't afford this, and he had three daughters. So nobody would want to marry them, so he was all upset about this. Um, in 2021, these girls could have just moved into a small apartment, gotten themselves a bunch of cats, and gone on with their lives. But way back in the 4th century, it meant that they would have to get the only job available to unwed women of the time, and that was prostitution. So the sad state of affairs deeply moved a Greek bishop named St. Nicholas, i.e. the inspiration for Santa Claus, who heard about this family's plight. And he came to the man's house in the middle of the night with three pouches of gold and looked in and saw the family there just sitting. And he couldn't go through the door because the door was locked. So he slid down the chimney and each one of these uh, future hookers had hung up their stockings by the fireplace to dry. So he filled the stockings with gold. The next morning, the girls awoke to find that they didn't have to change their names to the 4th century version of uh, Trixie or Candy or whatever it would be. And uh, this soon led to a custom of leaving out stockings for St. Nicholas to fill with gifts. And that is also why Santa Claus yells, ho, 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 because he's going to see the stockings and assume that that's what's going to be happening. He's like, oh, ho, 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 not on my watch. And he's going to fill it with little trinkets. <clears throat> Another Christmas tradition, Christmas caroling. And believe it or not, it wasn't always as bland as a bread sandwich. Before the 19th century, Christmas was seen more as a time where the regular social order of things could just go eat a bag of dicks. And in a sense, Christmas caroling was more like going trick-or-treating on Halloween. If the trick was just horrific violence. Um, looking into history, as I do, there are accounts that exist of carolers uh, burglarizing homes, destroying livelihoods, simply because they didn't have... Uh, their singing didn't cause the owners of the home to give them money for booze. Um, some even sang songs that explicitly threatened the home's occupants, saying that if they failed to provide goods, they could expect basically a curb stomping. Um, so that's another Christmas tradition. You see a bunch of Christmas carolers out there and you think, oh, look at them. They're singing the joys of the season. Just remember that, you know, this was God. This was in the 19th century, so this is only like 200 years ago. 200 years ago, those same people would be singing a song like, Give us a, give us a gift for singing to you, or we will crush your skulls. I will break your son's leg, and your daughter will be my mistress. That's the song they would sing at your doorstep, and you would, in a fear, give them shit so they didn't fuck up your life. That's, that's where that tradition comes from. Hmm. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, joy all around. Speaking of the holidays. The movie, It's a Wonderful Life, is a movie that I make it a personal point to watch every fucking holiday season. Even though, because I've seen the movie so much, 
it's only connected to the holidays because of the date on which Stuart decides to attempt suicide, which is Christmas Eve. In fact, I've seen this movie enough, I just watched it again, and I've narrowed down the plot for you listeners two or three sentences so that it would fit onto the back of any leftover VHS cover or DVD cover you might find. You ready? It's a Wonderful Life. After losing $8,000, a financially ruined Jimmy Stewart contemplates leaving his wife without a husband and his children fatherless on Christmas Eve. Yes, the beloved holiday classic. It's a Wonderful Life. That would be my... That's how I would sell the movie to you. Um, in the movie, of course, because he decides to commit suicide on Christmas Eve, that's when heaven itself steps in in the form of sending down a guardian angel to convince George Bailey not to kill himself and secretly dooms the small town that George Bailey lives in. I know what you're thinking. Well, wait a minute. I've seen A Wonderful Life. It's a happy ending. Okay, all right. This is the element of surprise. This isn't, yes, everything works out. If you want to go hear that podcast, go, you know, you can go dig it up. I don't even know that it is one. I'm sure it is, but this one's not. This is the element of surprise. You didn't come here for everything works out and is wrapped in a nice little package. See what I did there? Okay. Anyway, so in order to coax George Bailey out of committing suicide, Clarence, the guardian angel, shows George a version of the world where he'd never been born. His friends are all now drunks, and his beloved town of Bedford Falls has basically become the alternate Hill Valley from 1985 when Biff Tannen is in charge. Um, It's reinvigorated with the knowledge that his life is meaningful. George then returns back to his timeline home and uh, happily spends the season with his family and friends. Uh, all of which are still doomed now by the fact that he exists. I'm going to explain. You see, during the movie, we see George Bailey bringing a manufacturing industry industry into Bedford Falls uh, through new housing projects, basically. Um, That might be great for Bedford Falls in the short term, but the manufacturing industry long term isn't exactly doing so great, uh, particularly in upper states in the continental U.S., like uh, Connecticut and New York, where this film happens to also be set. If you can't picture what happens when a major employer such as a manufacturing industry goes sideways, take a look at Detroit. The effects would have been even worse in a very small town like Bedford Falls. So, look at what almost happens when George's doddering uncle loses the $8,000 deposit. The entire town loses its mind and makes a run on the bank. Uh, For those of you who don't know what old-timey terms like that mean, a run on the bank is where the, uh, basically, it's the equivalent of the stock market crashing, and you just go into the bank and pulling all your money out because they're going to take it. You know, everything that you've invested in is just gone now, so you got to go get whatever money's left as quickly as you can. That's what a run on the bank is. Everybody makes a run on the bank. Now, Try to imagine those exact same people getting laid off from all their jobs at the same time. What was a bunch of people losing their minds and making a run on the bank has now become the ending of Batman Begins where there's just 
tear gas going all over Gotham City and people were thinking people were turning into fucking maggots and shit like that and eating each other's faces. Ironically, the alternate future where uh, George didn't exist, the Biff Tannen version, where Bedford Falls, now called Pottersville, it would have thrived in that environment because resort cities full of strippers and gambling gambling, tend to avoid feeling the sting of hard economic collapses. Um, so while George Bailey's continued existence does keep his brother alive and prevent his friends from turning into destitute drunks and his stepping down from the edge of Suicide Bridge is really more like an albatross dooming Bedford Falls to decades of financial ruin. Yeah, things might be better for the entire region in the long run if George would have said, Hey Clarence, buzz off! And jumped into the goddamn river. Not to mention, I've watched this movie a bunch of times, and I'm almost completely convinced that George Bailey was the inspiration for Patrick Bateman from American Psycho. Hear me out. In one of the very first scenes in the movie American Psycho, we meet Patrick Bateman, played by Christian Bale. He's wealthy, smug, a corporate jerk, and he drones on about his extensive body wash regimen, uh, you know, a face mask treatment he talks about, and then he, as he pulls off the face mask treatment, he looks in the mirror, and there's a voiceover, and it says, there's an idea of a Patrick Bateman, some kind of abstraction, but there is no real me. I am simply not there. So, sure enough, over the course of the rest of that film, we learn that Patrick Bateman is not who he appears, and that he may essentially even be no one at all. He has a fiancé and a high-powered corporate job, and he doesn't seem to care about the first, and uh, doesn't seem to work at the latter. He turns on Huey Lewis's and the News, hip to be square, uh, just to enjoy the music that he enjoys as he axe-murders a colleague who he decides to kill because he had a better business card than him. Bateman doesn't fit into the perfect square corporate image, and he can't tailor himself to fit into it. So he handles other things with very sharp axes. Now George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart in A Wonderful Life, on the other hand, he seems like a much less bitter and less disturbing character, but when you really look at it, the parallels with American Psycho are there. Like Bateman, Bailey is driven by ambition, he wants to get out of the little town of Bedford Falls. He wants to see the world and be a big success. Instead, he gets stuck running, stuck in the town for the rest of his life, running a uh, nowhere bank and eventually faces financial ruin. It's at this point that the kind and compassionate George, who does everything right, starts to uh, peel off his outer layer and reveal a, a different self. You know, as things start going bad in George Bailey's life, they, oh, I'm nice guy George, just disappears uh, little by little. And um, because Jimmy Stewart was an actor who could melt down on screen like very few others, um, it turns into this vengeful, rage-filled explosion in which an ill-shaven George Bailey, haunted and cadaverous now, is so convincing that you wonder if George, who was everyone's friend, uh, five minutes ago, isn't uh, isn't really there, just like Patrick Bateman. You know, you can see Patrick's violence hiding inside George. You can also see the same emptiness. When George is about to kill himself, an angel appears and tries to persuade him to live by showing 
how badly off Bedford Falls would be without him. And again, the dream sequence is supposed to testify to uh, George Bailey's goodness. But with a little cynicism, it could also be read as uh, translated to Bateman-like wish-fulfillment narcissism. George's deepest wish is to see that his wife would have found no man without him. He wants to believe that Bedford Falls would descend into, you know, just absolute ruin and, for some reason, jazz clubs if he hadn't been there. Um, Patrick Bateman, at the end of American Psycho, realizes he may not have murdered anyone at all, and he's almost disappointed by this. He imagined himself as a great force of evil. George Bailey imagines himself as a great force of good. Now, obviously, there's a distinction there, but there are also some very, very strong parallels. Other characters throughout American Psycho keep mistaking Patrick Bateman for other corporate drones that exist in their world of people that they, quote, know, but nobody really knows anybody. And part of the reason he escapes from his crimes is that no one can remember who he really is. Um, he's basically just eminently replaceable. And George Bailey's greatest fear is that he's eminently replaceable, that he leaves no mark on the world. So... I've decided that both of them have two selves, the success that they want to be and then the failure that they are. The failure is a nobody. It's a blank slate. It's who Bateman claims to be underneath everything and who George Bailey fears to be. But the successful side of them is also a nobody since it's illusory. It's unreal. If you split into two absences, they both disappear and in place of a person, there's only rage and emptiness. So, I'm pretty sure that um, that's how it goes. But It's a Wonderful Life kind of suggests that that doesn't really have to be the last word. You know, in the spirit of Christmas, George's community comes together. They save him. He's somebody after all. Specifically, he has all these relationships with these other people. And those are relationships that Patrick Bateman noticeably lacks. As he's alienated at a Christmas party... Uh, George is saved by the great love of his wife and friends on Christmas. Um, Bailey is a better man than Bateman, clearly. But once you glimpsed the Bateman peeking out from the Bailey, it's hard to unsee. That's all I'm saying. So, we all know the deal with Christmas. Our days are supposed to be merry and bright. Santa is spying on us like some kind of old voyeuristic pervert. Unfortunately, this time of year is also dangerous and stressful. And even your best intentions can go tits up like that. It can get to a point where you just need to have a serious bitch fest about the whole goddamn thing. So if your family, or you, are looking for something to yell about this year, I've got five for you. Five things to fuel your holiday rage. Number five, weird Santa Claus displays. So every year you see the traditional setup in the middle of your local mall. Santa, tree, long line of parents about to spend an ungodly amount of money to sit their kid on a strange man's lap. Uh, typically, walking up to Santa is pretty standard. There's the giant, oversized, pre-wrapped gifts that are ready to be delivered. The so-called elf that looks suspiciously like the same emo girl that you may have seen yelling at her parents in front of Tropical Smoothie last week. 
and an elderly man with a beard seemingly overjoy at the endless line of miners coming to sit on him. Um, however, when you step back as I do and examine the whole fucking thing, it's pretty scary. Your local mall, suddenly what used to be an open area where for some reason they parked cars that were for sale, is now a representation of what somebody decided the North Pole looks like. And apparently, that person decided that what the North Pole looks like is enormous wrapped presence, a dementia patient sitting on a throne, which is objectively outside in one of the coldest places on Earth, and teenage Vulcans that are going through identity crises. Beyond that, the North Pole is, uh, I guess, known for its miniature railway system that circles all of this madness nonstop because there's always a tiny train running circles around Santa and his I'd Rather Be Having a Smoke Right Now companion. Now, this is where it gets really scary. Imagine for a moment that these... <coughs> excuse me. These awful ramshackle representations of our favorite holiday cheermeister's fantastic headquarters, imagine they're 100% accurate. Imagine that the actual North Pole is merely a small, frozen island with giant packages just littered all over it, and a single elderly man sitting on a throne dead center in the island, without shelter, while a constantly pissed-off tiny teenager complains to them. In the distance, and by distance is a very small island the size of maybe my living room, the jolly man sees a train and thinks for a moment, because of his dementia, I can escape this. I can take this train back to civilization, only to A... See, the train is way too small for him to ever travel on. And B, only runs in a fucking circle. Taunting him forever. He's just forever tormented by this nowhere train. Circling him at all times. Repeating this dementia fuel process of, Oh, a train. I can just, oh no. Just all the time. Number four. Reese's peanut butter holiday trees. You would think, in the world we live in, in 2021, there can't possibly be a way to screw up a Reese's peanut butter cup. It's chocolate and it's peanut butter. You go into the holiday season, and I don't mean just the Christmas season, I mean all the holidays, and Reese's offers you variations. They offer you the variants. The egg-shaped candy for Easter. The pumpkin for Halloween. Both of those make kind of sense. You will notice that both of those shapes are just slightly vari slight variations on circles, which Reese's has obviously perfected with their normal uh, peanut butter cup shape. So you'd think for Christmas they'd go something equally roundish, maybe like an ornament. An ornament, that makes sense. Christmas ornament, a Christmas bulb, or, or lights, something like that. Or maybe even a snowman. That's three circles. No. You know what they give us? Trees. Peanut butter trees. 
They promised us trees with pointed branches and everything. At best, what they deliver looks like a brown butt plug. At worst, it's definitely a turd. You know what it does not look like? A fucking tree. And there is some poor intern over at the Reese's company who probably only took the job because of the free candy and his job is now responding to each complaint that I and other people have sent about how the trees don't look like fucking trees. But here's what he did. If you go up to your local Walmart or anywhere where you can find Reese's peanut butter trees, go look at the bag. Go look at the bag. You'll see on it Reese's peanut butter trees and it'll say something on the back like all trees are beautiful and it's not the shape it's the taste which also happens to be the same thing I say to your mother on Thursday nights when you think she's at bingo but he turned this into um, a ridiculous beauty standards thing over the fact that they just failed to make a chocolate tree what the fuck Number three, stylized holiday cakes. Have you ever wondered what if he went to the gym and just went fucking roid crazy all year and took advice from a young Arnold Schwarzenegger? It's just a fever dream cake, I suppose, in a very minimum, almost non-existent way. The fact that you put enough effort or thought into getting somebody literally anything for the holidays does show you care. But let's be fucking serious. If you're going to put the effort in, go all in. Wouldn't it be logical to go all the way and get them something they'd actually enjoy? I was on my way out last night. I was thinking about you. You know, fuck that noise. I'm not saying that the thought doesn't count. I'm saying either go all in or don't go at all. If you're going to use any effort to express somebody's significance to your life, and vice versa, go balls deep and knock that motherfucker up. And number one, holes in holiday light displays. <coughs> so if you've listened to the last two episodes of a fireside chat uh, hosted by Ryan McCormick, you will have heard of the uh, Christmas lights display on Monticello Drive in Delmont. If you haven't, well, I'm telling you about it now. So, there's a huge, like, whole road long light display on Monticello Drive in Delmont. It's the first time in, like, years I've seen an entire street do the whole thing. But that's not what I'm talking about. Whether you enjoy light displays or not is actually irrelevant with what I'm talking about. What irritates the fuck out of me is that when you have a bunch of houses all decorated and lit up on the street, looking awesome and... Then there's just that one house that's sitting there with fucking nothing. 40 homes on a street, 39 fully adorned with lights, festive characters, snow folk, varieties of different holiday decor, and then you pass by the fucking Finkel residence, and it's just barren. It's devoid of any color or light or spirit at all. You know, what the fuck, Finkels? Come on. Would it kill you to pop some fucking lights on your goddamn porch? Just complete the goddamn display. Seriously. The one house on the entire block that basically screams, go fuck yourselves because I'm that guy. And don't think that we don't know that you live there. I see your fucking Tesla parked in the driveway, and I can see you sitting in there watching the prices right. 
You even have a fucking Christmas tree in the window, so don't give me any of that, whoa, well, we don't celebrate bullshit. You're lazy, Finkel. Get outside, put some fucking lights up, because you're ruining the experience for the strangers who've gone out of their way to come see your fucking little street. Strangers have gotten in their cars. They've driven from their undecorated homes to crowd and cluster your street with their three mile per hour driving while hanging dangerously out of the vehicles they're driving to take videos of your fully decorated homes and you have just fucked the whole thing up. You dirty fucking Scrooge. That's what you are, Finkel. And now that I know where your house is, I'm going to come back in the middle of the night and I'm going to take a shit on your porch right outside your front door so that when you're leaving for work tomorrow, you're absolutely going to step in it. And there's going to be a note written inside of the most festive Christmas card I can find at Walmart or CVS Pharmacy. And it's going to say this. Hey, Finkel, put up your lights or I'm going to fucking kill you. Happy holidays, you sick child molesting fuck. Love, Chad. And then, of course, my address and a list of my fears. That's it. That's what Finkel gets for ruining the enjoyment of strangers. So, let me end on this. Whether you like Christmas, love it, don't celebrate it, hate it, or just outright ignore it, no matter how black, white, male, female, Irish, German, tall, short, Bosnian, or pretty you felt this year, you are a part of a family that has been targeted by a very unforgiving cosmos since the inception of time. But you're also part of a species that has, regardless, survived. Humanity is an inherently heroic species that has spent about 99.999999% of its time as the underdog. And if you see no billboards telling you that, it's not because it's not true, it's because there's little to no profit to be made from it. I could go on and on about the suffering we've endured and the adaptations we've made to survive, but to me our species' crowning jewel is that on the shortest day of the year, when the sun spends most of its time gone and everything is fucking frozen, when nothing can grow, when the air is so cold that our voices stop right in front of our faces, we put a string of lights around the fucking universe that is currently doing nothing to earn it, by the way. We not only salvage an otherwise desolate time of year, we make it the best time. Wait, you might say, so your inspirational true meaning of Christmas, Chad, is that uh, we should remember how filthy our ancestors used to be and how they used to freeze to death on a regular basis? No, I'm not saying Christmas, is, Christmas isn't magical because of what it was or where it came from. It's magical because of what it still is which is that this festive gathering around the fire might be the last time you ever see one of those faces of someone that you love. Family, friends, and that endless cycle of daily torment and suffering that we call life and adulthood keeps us from seeing each other as often as we would like. Statistically, some of you are in fact traveling to see your parents or grandparents or siblings or friends for the very last time. You don't know it's their last time. They don't know it's their last time. If you did, you'd somehow do it differently. Also, you'd be fucking a billionaire. You don't, but you do try to, you should try to stretch out those moments. Maybe a little bit longer. You wouldn't spend conversations nervously looking for an exit. You wouldn't spend, you'd spend a little bit more time digging up old memories and laughing about your shared past. You'd spend less time worrying about gifts and budgets and more time about how we're spending the precious little time that we have left. Once upon a time, Nobody needed a reminder that life was short. 
The holiday season was your reminder. You hugged your family extra tight because you just knew that life was fleeting. Here one moment, and then like Kaiser fucking so say, it's gone. But that was a long time ago. Our problems are less dire. They're less immediate these days. And as a result, we forget that we're still the same fragile creatures we always were. And if you think that that's a big downer, that this idea of Christmas was all about the last hurrah before slow death by freezing or starvation, you're looking at it the wrong way. I mean, look around you. This is humanity in a nutshell. When faced with the cold specter of death, we put on festive sweaters, eat cookies, and sing songs about a jolly supernatural being who brought joy to our lives by committing crimes like breaking and entering. The spirit of Christmas isn't in the wanting, or the giving, or the love. It's just in the being. Just existing, as a species, together. Because at the end of the day, that's all we have. Cell phones and jobs, worries and complaints. These things don't matter. They never did. All that matters ever, all year round, is that when things look their darkest and it feels like we can't go on anymore, we do. We keep moving forward, no matter what obstacles are put in our path. And we try to be as happy as we can be. And if you've got people, any people at all that you can feel that way with, even if just a little bit, go be with those people and cherish that it could be very easily the last time you're ever together. Cherish it and drag out those moments. Worry tomorrow. Complain tomorrow. Or, you know what? Don't. Just keep cherishing and keep loving and keep being. Because that's what this whole fucking stupid amazing thing is really all about. Thank you. Merry Christmas. And cue the fucking bear music. <laughs>